criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim. This is Neil Rockheim, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Killer Cross-Examination, where we explore what is the most important and most interesting and exciting and drama-filled part of any jury trial, or trial for that matter, which is cross-examination. I love cross-examination. I can't wait to get up and get my hands on the sides of the podium and lean in and, and stare and begin the process of questioning and putting questions to a witness who's just testified to something about my client. And cross-examination has been called a lot of things. It's been called the greatest mechanism ever devised for getting to the truth. There's even an interpretation of Proverbs 18.17. It talks about the wonder of cross-examination. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. And this podcast is about killer cross-examination and my love for it and my love for how uh, and my admiration for lawyers who have the, the art and the skill to conduct skillful, artful, penetrating, probing cross-examinations. And that, because witnesses can be prepared for direct examination, which is where the lawyer that called them actually is sort of is calls them and anticipates what that witness is going to say. And by the time the witness takes the stand for direct examination, or they're going to offer evidence against my client or against somebody in court, they already have an idea of what the prosecutor is going to say, what the questions are going to be, but not on cross-examination. And killer cross-examination is designed to expose the witness's untruthfulness, to reveal the full story. And that's what this podcast is about. And so I want to bring to you cross-examinations that I've conducted and bring them to life so that you can imagine yourself sitting in the courtroom, actually conducting, actually watching. You can picture yourself feeling the intensity of the examination, feeling the witness's sweat in the palms of his hands, feeling the drops of sweat that pour off his forehead, and feeling the pressure as I put more and more and more questions to the witness until the witness is revealed to be unreliable, untruthful, and maybe even offers evidence that's helpful to my client. That's the exciting part of the trial, and I want to bring that to you each and every week. This week, I'm going to continue with uh, the second, I guess, episode of Death by a Thousand Cuts. 
Last week's episode, I talked about death by a thousand cuts and of a particular witness who testified in court, and we caught the witness and 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 revealed the witness to uh, have been untruthful and to have been coached, describing the wrong location, the wrong property, the wrong description. And a friend of mine wrote and said, that wasn't death by a thousand cuts. That was death after two cuts. Well, the witness that followed that one was another agent, a special agent. And this witness was the one in the same case who was going to attempt to put the, the, the nail in the coffin of my client. So let me paint the scene again as this witness takes the stand. He raises his right hand, chest is out. He's very confident. He's wearing a, a suit and a tie. He looks all the part of the, of the GI man. Um, he is, uh, looks very proper and, and, and appropriate, cleanly shaved. One of these witnesses that he proudly raises his right hand and says out loud with vigor, I do, when asked whether he will tell the truth. And nothing but. And this is one of those witnesses who after each time, he, after every question, his answers, he would turn and look at the jury as if to, to establish some phony connection between he and the individual jurors, like he wasn't answering the prosecutor's questions. He would swivel in his chair and look over at the jury and try to make eye contact with them as though he were communicating directly with them. And I knew how phony that appeared, and it appeared phony to everyone in the courtroom. Well, this witness had testified that he was the actual surveillance officer. They called him the eye. And he said that as he's following my client in this uh, large, uh, multi-international, multi-jurisdictional drug case uh, with multiple lawyers and defendants from different countries and some of the best prosecutors we've gone up against and some of the best lawyers seated to my right and left that I've worked with ever, this witness says that um, he observes my client, driving his car, turn into uh, a car wash. And then he tries to, he says that he couldn't turn into the car wash himself, but he kept an eye on my client. He drove 10 yards to the next street. There was a street right after the car wash. The street ran parallel to the, the car wash's drive. He made a left. He drove down a few feet to the bottom of the hill where he stopped in a driveway and he never lost sight of my client, never lost sight of my client's vehicle, never lost sight of, had a perfect vantage point and he stopped in a driveway at the bottom and looked, could see straight ahead and was able to watch what he says was an exchange. And he points to my client and says, that man, my client, the one sitting next to me with the headphones and dressed as a, as a, like a grandpa would be dressed in an Argyle sweater and a, a pair of khakis, that man took a package or delivered a package to that other man and points to another defendant in the courtroom. And then the, the, the second vehicle was ultimately stopped and they find drugs in the vehicle. 
this was the man that was going to seal the case against my client. The prosecutor finishes her examination, and you could, the silence in the courtroom was only overcome by the rustling of some papers. It seemed as though, based on this man's testimony, that they had us. Remember Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins, and boy, did my cross-examination begin. Well, that witness and that, I, that I talked about in episode three may have uh, died, and uh, not by a thousand cuts, but by two. This witness needed more. And so as he's on the stand, I get up and I start to question him about the importance of being truthful, of, of, of being direct and truthful and not exaggerating and embellishing. And, and one of the things that judges tell jurors is that pay attention when you evaluate a witness's credibility. You have to not just evaluate what they say, but also look at their demeanor. And one of the things that you have to look at is whether the witness is, is arguing with the lawyer or in, in evading the questions. This witness, he stopped evading and arguing. He stopped evading and arguing with me early on. He turned it into outright combat. This wasn't evasion and argument. If this guy could have hopped off the witness stand and wanted to get into a fist fight over answers, he would have, it seemed. And so there I am, hands on the side of the podium. My materials in front of me, the witness there, the jury is to my left, the jury is to his right, and he's no longer looking at the jury as he's answering because the questions are too probing. I had done my homework. One of the lessons that lawyers should, should and anybody that's going to be questioning anybody, whether it's in a business context or a courtroom context, is you have to do your homework. The idea of just winging it, had I just winged it with this witness, this guy would have destroyed me. Someone is being sold, as they say. Remember this from the Wolf of Wall Street. Someone's being sold in every exchange. Either I'm selling the jury on that this guy isn't believable and trusted or reliable, or he's selling the jury that he is and that I'm just a lawyer throwing up smoke. Well, he said that he turned into a street and it was no more than 10 yards after the driveway to the, and a picture of that. He says it was no more than 10 yards to the, after the, the car wash. And he says 10 yards because 10 yards is a relatively short, short distance, right? And it was even no more than. So he was trying to suggest that it was less than 10 yards. Well, think about less than 10 yards. That's like between the 10 and the 20-yard line or the goal line and the 10-yard line. That's a first down. Not easy to get a first down, but it's pretty easy to see from the goal line to the 10-yard line. So he says no more than 10 yards. That's an effort to establish that he had a, uh, when he turned on the street, he was able to maintain his clear vantage point of my client and he was able to see clearly because it wasn't very far is what he's suggesting. And as I draw out of him through questioning about how he was 
it's important to be truthful. And if you don't know the answer to something, say you don't know. And if don't exaggerate and don't embellish. And of course, he wouldn't get up there as a as an agent, and he wouldn't exaggerate or embellish one way or the other. He certainly wouldn't shorten the distance that of the between the driveway of the car wash and the the street that he turned down to make it seem like he had a better vantage point. And of course, he agrees. And then I ask him if he's ever played football or followed football, and he looks at me and I say, you know, 10 yards, that's a first down. And then I pull out a map and I measure. It was 100 yards. I said, you said it was 10 yards. Well, I said it was about 10 yards. I said, no, you said it was no more than 10 yards. That's the difference between goal line to goal line versus goal line to 10-yard line. A first down, which happens all the time, where someone gets 10 yards, versus someone going running the entire length of the field, which happens almost never. He argued with me on that, but it was clear at that point that he had been exaggerated and embellishing, but I wasn't done. I showed that the street that he went down that was 100 yards away, actually went down, not parallel. It was parallel, but it actually went down. And that the car wash happened to be up on a very steep hill, and it sat at the top of a hill. And he says that as he drove down, and he had a perfect vantage point, and he pulled into this driveway at the bottom, and I said the driveway at the bottom, right at the bottom, the driveway that's adjacent to the, that's, that's uh, uh, perpendicular to the, to the street, he goes, yes. I said, you had a clear vantage point sitting in that driveway. He said, yes. I said, can you see through wood? He goes, no. I said, you sure you had a clear vantage point? He concedes. He says, of course I did. And then I pull out a photograph. And there's a house there. I said, you telling this jury that you could see through that house? He ducks and dodges again. He was beyond evasive, beyond argumentative. This was combat. He said he could see from that driveway, and I put him right in the spot because I had been there. I'd done my homework, and he makes an X in the driveway, and then I show him that in a photograph that there's a house there. Unless you got some kind of Superman X-ray vision, he couldn't see through that house. And you can see the jury is shifting in their seats now where they had been mesmerized on direct examination thinking this guy was going to sink us. Now they can see that there's something wrong. 10 yards versus 100, a, a downhill, and then he has to look through a house. And then I point out that uh, this wasn't a clear field where you can just see down a field like a football field said there are trees. Trees have limbs and trees have leaves. And he acknowledges that they do. And I ask him, almost like out of that, you know, that, that uh, wonderful movie, I said, are you able to, be able to see through the wood of the trees? Are you able to see through the branches? Well, they were thin. They, 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 they didn't really pose much of a problem for me. He wanted to argue further. I pull out the pictures. Tree after tree, mature trees, not little baby trees, huge trees with limbs, 
And then he wanted to say, well, there wasn't fo foliage, like there, wasn't, there weren't leaves on the trees. And I point out the season, and of course there's still leaves on the trees. It's not, it's not the dead of winter. And he wants to dance and dodge, and he's shifting, and he's arguing because of another reason why he shouldn't be believed. He said that he had a clear vantage point, not only to see through a house, but there were these trees that were in his way. And then I talk about the distance. I said, "Send you had a clear vantage point. I said, now I point the, the, the rest of the picture, which I want you to see. He's shifting. I'm leaning. I'm in. I know that I'm, I've now cut him multiple times. And the knife is, the, the figurative knife is still in my hand, and I'm going for more. And the jury can sense it. The lawyers in the courtroom can sense it. And I point out that there's a hill it's a very steep hill, one you could almost sled down if you were a kid, a very steep hill from the bottom of this street behind this house, and the hill goes all the way up, very steep incline. It's so steep that the car wash actually has a metal railing that runs on the edge of the, or at the top of the hill so that cars won't go over the edge if they're backing up. And then even a yards away beyond that metal barrier, are these vacuum pumps where they say that two cars ended up meeting. And I point out, and I said, so you had a clear vantage point? I said, yeah. And I said, now, you know how when you look up a hill and you're at the bottom of the hill and you're trying to look something not right at the top, but something that's past the top, that's almost at the plateau, that's yards past the top. I said, your vision is obscured. You can't see the, the bottom. You can't see the ground after the top. He goes, I don't know what you mean. I said, well, take a look at a picture. And I pointed out, and there's a huge, giant flagpole. I saw a picture of the flagpole from the street. It's a massive American flagpole. But from the bottom of that hill, the flagpole looks like it's about two feet tall because you can't see the bottom because of the perspective. That's where the cars were. He wanted to argue. He wanted to sh and shift, and you could sense from the jury. And I'm sitting here, and he's arguing with me so much. I'm so not used to a witness who's willing to argue. He just would not give in. They look at one of my co-counsel who gets up to me and says, keep going. We all know he's being exposed. And you can see that when we actually did, we brought out pictures with the cars, similar cars right in the same spot, that he wouldn't have been able, given that perspective, that height differential from the bottom of the hill all the way up to the top, past that metal rail, past the, the, the yards that were in the, you know, the, the concrete or asphalt driveway. You, you couldn't see most of the flagpole. You couldn't see most of the vacuum pumps. You certainly couldn't see... The bottoms of the cars where he claims that he observed some exchange. Each and every point, another dagger, another cut. Did the witness ever actually admit that he didn't see? No. He tried to the very end to maintain that he could see an exchange. I put to him that he couldn't even identify specific colors or words or, or specific lights or language that was 
written on any of the things at the very top of this hill, but he persisted that he could. He continued, he persisted. Remember, on direct examination, his story sounded so compelling. I followed, I was no more than 10 yards. I turned down the street. I drove, I stopped in a driveway, I had a clear vantage point, I never lost vantage point, I saw an exchange between Mr. Rockine's client, that guy right over there, and this other guy over there. Sure sounded right until the cross-examination began, and that's why I love cross-examination. I love good cross-examination. I love to see the witnesses exposed when they're caught as this man most assuredly was. It got to the point that as I'm admitting photographs showing that it was impossible for him to have made an observation, the distance the house, <laughs> the absurdity of saying that he could actually see through a house. He didn't even know that we would go down there and look, but we did. The hill, the dimensions, the trees, the leaves, the perspective. He thought he was going to come in there and just say that he saw something and was prepared to do it, but didn't realize that as part of what we do as part of good cross-examination that we were going to tell the other story. And as I'm going through the cross-examination one photograph at a time, revealing that each and every piece of, I mean, it almost got to be laughable. In fact, I think, and I don't want to overstate this, but at some point when I made a, a, a comment, the jurors were chuckling. They, they were smiling. And one of my co-counsel was over, he goes, to keep it going, don't stop. Photograph after photograph, picture after picture. And he never gave in. Instead, he tried to stick with it. And some of the jurors were leaning back, and some had their arms crossed, all signs that they were trying to physically distance themselves from him. It got to the point at the end of the examination where the judge and you know this is the telltale sign. This is, this is the sign where someone needs to wave the white flag of surrender. If it were a boxing match, someone needs to, his corner would have thrown in the towel. This is when you know that this next moment I'm going to describe to you is one that few lawyers have experienced, but I did. I did using cross-examination to show and tell that this witness just couldn't have seen what he claimed to and that he was willing and trying to say that he saw an exchange between my client and this other guy. It got to the end that the judge is scratching his head. He's looking at the jury, looking at the other lawyers. He's looking around the room. It's obvious that this witness has no pulse left. You couldn't come in and use any sort of any sort of CPR. You couldn't give this witness an adrenaline shot to 
spark him back to life. The witness was, after all of those cuts and pictures and points that he just couldn't have seen what he claimed to have saw, that he was figuratively dead as a witness on the witness stand. And you know how we all, we all knew it. But the judge looks at me and he says, just ask the question. I look at the judge, kind of like with my RCA Victor dog side head look like, hmm? Excuse me, Your Honor? He goes, I think it's about time you ask the isn't it true question. And my co-counsel, the lawyers that were telling me to keep it going, they smiled. I stand up a little straighter. The witness has been shifting, trying to withstand the, the barrage. And think about that for, for probably over a, an hour, maybe two hours. He's been sitting there trying to explain how he could make this observation when clearly the physical evidence showed he couldn't and his judgments were just not right. Nice. Just sticking to it. And the judge looks and says, just ask, isn't it time you ask the question? And so I asked the question that the judge suggested was appropriate for the moment and we were all smiling. Isn't it true, Agent, that you couldn't and didn't see any exchange at all? No. The judge looks around, rolls his eyes. As I recall, isn't it true that you were so out of position, Agent, you were out of position? No. And you got to the bottom of the hill and realized that you weren't in a position to see what, if anything, was going on between these, these two people. Isn't that true? No. I saw. Said, and when you saw the vehicle's start to part ways and go in different directions, you realized that you might have missed something. Isn't that true? No, I saw it. And because of the house and the hill and the trees and the perspective and the distance, you just assumed that there had been some exchange. No, that's not how it went. Isn't it true you saw nothing at all and just attempted to fill in the blanks. No. After a, I think the trial was two weeks um, that my client was acquitted of all of the, the charges as he should have been. And it was largely due to these two witnesses, one I described in episode three, and particularly the one I'm describing now, who succumbed to cross-examination, killer cross-examination, and death by a thousand cuts. They wanted to argue. They wanted to 
He wanted to try to give it back. He just wouldn't accept it. At some point, I was like a boxer punching my opponent, looking back at the referee saying, throw in the towel already. If this guy, if I had to give this guy a a name, if I had to take a boxer name and give it to him, I would probably say he was, at least during that cross-examination, he was Roberto Duran. Because he clearly, at some point, um, he wanted no mas. So I hope you enjoy these, my trying to relive and, and recreate these amazing moments about cross-examination and what a important, valuable tool it is in the courtroom. It's an important and valuable tool in life, too. They say some of the best cross-examiners are mothers who've never gone to law school. Uh, They can cross-examine their children without even looking at them as they have their back to them and just get out, probe and pry and get their children to concede that they hadn't slept over at their friend's house but had done X, Y, and Z. And that's because Cross-examination is, in a lot of ways, it is an art form. It is a true art. And it requires um, being able to paint that picture, as I did in this case. And I want people to to be exposed, because I love the art of cross-examination. I love being able to tell my story, my client's story, to get to what we know to be the truth, not what the witness said on direct examination, but to get to the truth or to reveal that the truth that the witness is claiming isn't so. You got to do your homework. But cross-examination is the most important mechanism that we have for getting either to the truth or at least revealing that what people are telling us isn't. And one of the things that frustrates me is watching congressional hearings where there isn't very good examination at all. There's speeches. No one is really seriously or effectively attempting to put together a line of questioning to to corner the, the witnesses who are testifying in Congress about important matters that matter in our lives. They're just giving speeches. I think to myself, some of these senators and congressmen, they need to learn how, they need to learn killer cross-examination. Because besides giving speeches, you can do a lot to expose that what a person is telling you isn't true. You got to do your homework. You got to picture what the truth is. You got to be able to show at various times that the witness is exaggerating and embellishing. And you got to be able to exact cut after cut. I hope you enjoy these episodes. 
of killer cross-examination. The next episode, I'm going to talk about uh, another incredible cross-examination moment. Um, one of my one of my favorites, and I have so many. One in um, in which uh, we really exposed a witness to be. Um, I'll save it for the next episode. You'll have to tune in. But I hope you subscribe and like Killer Cross-Examination. And I know some think that it's just about, it's just really a tool for lawyers. And I hope it's more than that for you. I want you to be entertained. I want you to be, to enjoy the, the scene setting. And I want you in some ways to be able to, to appreciate the art, the skill that some of us lawyers are able to bring to these subjects in these cases. And maybe even be able to apply some of these tools and experiences in your own life, whether it's in the boardroom or in your home, in the dining room, dealing with your loved ones, or in the classroom, dealing with students, learning how to set the witness up, the person who's telling you a story, and drawing them in more and more and allowing them to continue to tell you things that you can prove to be untrue or show do not make logical sense and reveal that they can't be relied on. That's killer cross-examination. And so if you enjoy these, I hope you'll subscribe. It's available on all platforms. It's on YouTube where we've got one of the most watched YouTube cross-examination videos. We think it may be the most watched or viewed cross-examination video. It's available on Apple Podcasts. It's available on Google Podcasts. This is available on our website, killercrossexamination.com. It's available on Spotify. So join me as we continue our journey down uh, in future weeks exploring just the art of killer cross-examination and what an amazing tool it is. Remember who speaks first seems to be right until he's cross-examined. Thanks for joining. Killer, killer cross-examination. A podcast by your host, the nationally renowned criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockheim.